I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Celebrate this July 4th with a special presentation of A Capital Fourth. Join your host, Vanessa Williams, with performances from Sea to Shining Sea, starring Jimmy Buffett, Gladys Knight, Alan Jackson, Cynthia Erivo, Pentatonix, Renee Fleming, Train, Jennifer Nettles, Mickey Guyton, Jimmy Allen, Ali'i Cravalho, Laura Osnes, Ali Stroker, and the greatest live fireworks display in the USA. It's A Capital Fourth, sponsored by the Boeing Company and American Airlines, Sunday, July 4th, 8, 7 Central only on PBS. My name is Dave Hanready and there will be no popcorn. Welcome to episode 31 of the No Popcorn, the Movies and Music podcast, part, of course, of the No Encore podcast. And uh, happy Valentine's Day. This will be out probably about a week or two after Valentine's Day, but that's the day that we're recording this on. I rolled out of bed at about half nine and I watched Dirty Dancing immediately. The credits have only rolled on it about 45 minutes ago and I'm ready to talk about it with two people who celebrate their birthday on the same day, which is... A few days after Valentine's Day, which will also have happened. So I say first, happy birthday, Norma Howard. Thanks. Happy Valentine's to you. Thank you very much. Are we all each other's Valentine's now? Well, I I hope so, because you're both in relationships and uh, I'm not. (laughs) So uh, happy birthday and Valentine's Day, Dave Higgins. And a happy Valentine's Day to you, Dave. And a happy Valentine's Day to you, Norma. Thank you. Good stuff. Good <laughs> stuff. That's all I wanted. <laughs> so, yes, uh, back to talk about a movie once again that has a musical connection, and this time it is Dirty Dancing, classic 1987 romance movie. I presume lots of people love it. We'll talk about that later in the show, not too long from now. But first, we will talk about what we've been watching. Dave Higgins, I implore you to go first. 
Um, yeah, so I have watched a couple of things lately. I've been uh, theming theming my month of February after Valentine's Day with a couple of a couple of romance movies of uh, varying quality and uh, varying tones. Um, I finally got around to watching the uh, Joe Wright adaptation of Anna Karenina. Um, I read the book there last year, so it was something that was like curious, not necessarily looking forward to it, but like curious to see um what it was like I tend to be a little bit agnostic to uh joe wright and his oeuvre but um it was interesting enough um the way that this is kind of uh set is like the whole movie is on a theater so a lot of the big gymnastics of camera movements that joe wright tends to love if you've seen his big sweeping dunkirk shot in atonement it's kind of like that done to the the nth degree um much like the book, I kind of like struggled with the uh, relationship between Anna Karenina and uh, Vronsky. Um, I think Keira Knightley, it's not her best performance, but it's a, a tough character to play. Um, I wasn't really convinced by Aaron Taylor Johnson as Vronsky, but in the supporting roles, it's absolutely stacked. Um, I know last time you were talking about how Matthew McFadden has be, kind of become the de facto uh, kind of dirtbag at like a middle management level and I think I'd said to you like when I was reading the book it was around the time I was watching Succession and I knew the character Oblonsky was played by Matthew McFadden in the movie and like Succession like the Wanscans and Oblonsky just kind of started to meld together where you totally could see um, Oblonsky like go out in St. Petersburg on a stag and you know have fellatio done to him and have it passed back to him he's fantastic in this and i think this is probably kind of the start of where that came from that kind of turn that he's taken um because before this he was basically kind of like sold as like you know a leading man in pride and prejudice in spooks i watched five seasons of spooks back in the day when did you if, if someone I, I, gave if someone i didn't know gave anyone you, watched that show that's fucked up <laughs> well like you know, like before before netflix i guess and before kind of like streaming you know there was like the box set movement where like if someone had a box set, you'd probably just watch it. Like I've watched a lot of Nip Tuck and it's garbage, but it was there <laughs> and it was kind of like, well, you can watch Nip Tuck or you can stare at the, <laughs> stare at the walls. I did have the like, first maybe. four seasons of Nip Tuck on box set. Yeah, he's right. He makes a cogent point, listener. I do apologize. Can I just say real quick on Anna Karenina, by the way, my parents went to see that when it came out in the cinema and they were disgusted to learn that it was set the way it's set, that it's all shot on a theater stage. It ruined the film for them straight away. Yeah, and like there's a couple of there's a couple of shots because like some of it, um, Donald Gleason's great and he plays Levin, who's like most interesting character in the book, has this romance with um, um, Alicia Vikander, and some of them like some of their scenes are set outdoors and it's gorgeous looking and like you know they have like dakas in the middle of uh, you know outside of the countryside of Russia and it's like oh give me a bit more of this Joe Wright and less of like you know look how clever I am at how I stage this. Um, I also watched as part of my love season, uh, God's Own Country, came out a couple of years ago. Uh, this stars Josh O'Connor, who, if you're watching The Crown at the moment, is currently the Prince Charles. Uh, and it is about a farmer in Yorkshire who lives with his dad, who's just had a stroke, and his grandmother. And he's basically kind of like tending to the land. Uh, he kind of seems like he hates it, uh, drinks too much, uh, goes out, has sex with dudes uh, at like cattle meets and they have to bring in a um, helper for lambing season. So they bring in a 
a Romanian migrant. Uh, the two of them kind of develop a relationship together. Really, really good. Uh, incredible, like, two uh, performances from, from the leads. Um, does lots of nice stuff, kind of, like, on the edges without, like, really hammering home about, you know, post-Brexit Britain, rural isolation. And kind of, it's the kind of movie that you kind of expect, like, it drew comparisons, I guess, to, to Brokeback Mountain. But... It's kind of not afraid to have a happy ending, which was nice. Um, so that was good. I also watched uh, Phoenix, which I guess wouldn't really uh, you could classify as a as a romance movie. But um, this is directed by Christian Petzold, who made Transit recently, which is a movie I think I talked about in a previous podcast. Um, this movie was really good um, until it got incredible. Maybe one of the best final scenes I've ever seen in a film. Um, it's about a cabaret singer in Berlin after World War II. Uh, she was Jewish and she'd been in a concentration camp and had escaped. And after that, due to kind of like being shot, has reconstructive surgery um, on her face to the point where she doesn't really look like she used to anymore. So she goes back to Berlin to try and kind of get her life back. And her husband is still living in Berlin um, but doesn't recognize her. And because she's kind of shell-shocked, she isn't really able to tell him who she is and then kind of don't want to go too much into the plot, but, like, she essentially, like, assumes the role of, like, this other person. Um, really, really, really strong film. Uh, maybe a further down the line, episode 400 of No Popcorn will be a, a contender. <laughs> you know, we'll bring back Berlin correspondent Dahi Odroni for it. Um, I also watched uh, Everest. I rewatched Everest. I, I'm not 100% certain why. Um, Love season, yeah. <laughs> Classic yeah, romance. A, a, movie, a movie I reviewed back in the day, and like it's, it's good, but I think kind of just why I want to mention it, it probably has one of the most overqualified uh, casts when it comes to like all the great actresses that are in it who basically only get to be on the other side of a phone while... You know, Jake Gyllenhaal and uh, Josh Brolin and Jason Clark get to like go and hike Everest. Like Robin Wright literally exists on the other side of a phone. Keira Knightley in bed, heavily pregnant on the other side of a phone. Emily Watson on a, uh, you know, a radio. So, you know, a little bit of a difference there. And then like maybe 15th build, Elizabeth Debicki is in it. Uh, Vanessa Kirby, 16th build. Mia Goth gets to be like literally gets to react to Robin Wright on the phone. Um it's a fine movie, it's grand. Uh last, and I think you both have watched this. Um a lot of people watching it now, a lot of people talking about it, a lot of buzz. Uh watch Promising Young Woman. Uh this is Emerald Fennel, uh her directorial debut. Linked to God's Own Country. She is the Camilla Parker Bowles in the crown to uh Joshua Connor's Prince Charles. Um yeah, this movie Lots of things to like about it. Um, I think it's incredibly well cast. Carrie Mulligan, um, an amazing performance centrally. Um, and the way that the rest of the cast is filled out is really, really clever. There's kind of lots of faces that pop up that you would know, but they're doing very, very different things to what you're kind of expected from them. Um, Sam Richardson, who's phenomenal in Veep as uh, Richard Splett, uh, who's kind of just like this goofy, amiable character, here is like this incredibly, you know, toxic, bro-y person. Um, Clancy Brown, who, you know, kind of used to just being like, you know, his voice is brimstone. Um, he's normally a villain. And in here, he's just like this really loving father, um, 
he has like an incredible scene kind of midway through the movie where he's just kind of like really happy that he thinks that his daughter is happy again. And like, it's such a touching moment and it's such kind of moment that you don't tend to give to an actor like that really works. Um, it takes a big swing. I think you said in the, in the final act, um, it misses, misses quite a bit. Yeah, I thought so. Um, I mean, it's kind of the film of the moment in lots of ways. Uh, Carrie Mulligan's excellent in it. It has, it's very confidently made. It has moments that are like, you wouldn't think we're really a first time filmmaker. I think she is a first time filmmaker, Emerald Fennel. And I just thought it was toothless by the time the credits rolled. I thought the last act was a really kind of dodgy fucking narrative turn that I didn't think justified the means. Especially the ending, like the very ending, I was like, you're kind of giving the audience like a bit of a punch to the air moment, but I really don't think you are. And I just thought it was very arch. I thought it was way too kind of overwritten in that way. It's just so archetypical and it felt designed for think pieces. It felt designed for Twitter threads and GIFs. And it's like, I feel like a lot of people like seem to think that this thing has never been done before. And it has a lot, arguably better. Um, Wanted to like it, just found it to be a bit too kind of happy with itself. Like I just, I didn't think it was making the arguments that people are making on behalf of the film and I thought ultimately it was just surprisingly tame um again Carrie Mulligan's excellent in it it looks great sounds good didn't need the Paris Hilton scene you know I know it's it's, it's ironic sorry it's iron- I haven't actually seen it yet she's not in it they use right, stars okay. are blind because uh, <gasps> uh, you were giving out about that song the other day and I was like stars are blind is an absolute uh, tune Don't I mean talk to me. it's debatable but like ultimately that scene but that scene is just drenched in like oh we're ironic and it's like cool I get it no it's um, just I, I felt it had promise ironically enough and I understand that a lot of people are kind of taking it you know to their chests and they're like this is what we need right now but i don't think it actually justifies the premise at all i just by the end of it i was kind of like ah fair enough you you gave it a go but you know i don't mean to sound wildly patronizing there but like i just felt like good idea didn't quite pay off for me norma what have you been watching um i definitely will watch that at some point because i think it's it's out now it came out in the last couple of days i think it's out so now, yeah. yeah um so what i have been watching um so i finally 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 got around to watching do the right thing it was just like i feel like this film is like one of the most recommended films of all time i feel like anyone who watches it instantly is like you have to watch this film um spike lee's second film i think it was yeah um, next to she's gotta have it which i actually had watched maybe about six months ago um and like you can tell he's like working out the style and the things that he likes and she's got to have it and like his sort of signature pieces and by the time he gets to do the right thing it's it's really well cemented really really well directed he's in it um and yeah i guess i just like i had actually avoided learning too much about what the plot line was about so by the end of it 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 really did just absolutely destroy me because it's still so achingly relevant um absolutely beautifully done so interesting throws up a lot of arguments about racism and different sides and different opinions and things like this um absolutely amazing i would like loved every second of it um and would highly recommend it to anyone who wants to give it a watch 
um, this kind of weird links in. I finished the wire, <laughs> hooray! <laughs> and I feel like that needs <laughs> that needs a moment in itself <laughs> because I realized that the one thing about finishing the wire is that uh, you then just start to see actors from the wire everywhere. So it's just I just feel like I'm spending the rest of my days now being like he's in the wire because Burrell shows up and do the right thing. He's like one of the three men who sit on the side of the street. And then, like, I I think I mentioned before, I had watched One Night in Miami and Daniels and D'Angelo show up. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, yeah, I just feel like anything I watch now, I'm like, oh, look, someone from The Wire. They're everywhere. <laughs> I feel like particularly in One Night in Miami, it's like a who's who of, you know, uh, prestige HBO shows from the early 2000s because Michael yeah. Imperioli from The Sopranos is in that. And <laughs> I'm trying to think, there's, I know there's like another he, He's also in Do the Right Thing. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's like like obviously the wire is incredible, and I'm I'm now certified as one of those people who has watched the wire. I am now a thirty year old man um, <laughs> in a smoking area, <laughs> explaining to women for not about it. how they should watch the wire. Um, so in contrast to that, I watched the Queen's Gambit. It's something that had been like recommended to me for ages, and it's everything everyone says it is. It looks absolutely gorgeous. It is an interesting. It's a really interesting storyline. Anya Taylor-Joy is fantastic in it. Um, the production design, costuming and makeup is gorgeous. And it suits really, really well with it's set sort of between 50s, 60s. And um, I can't remember who the name of the cinematographer is. But between him and the editor, like the grade that's on it looks absolutely beautiful. It just looks like you're watching the book come out. Um, I wanted to ask, does Anya Taylor-Joy redeem herself after your after I hated nightmare? Her so much. <laughs> she's, a, she's a fantastic actor and like I've, um, and like, yeah, she, she does an amazing job in this. It's like, I think most, I think most people know about it at this stage, but just for anyone who hasn't, it's based on a book um, about this girl who was orphaned at the age of nine and she goes to this sort of, um, girls school orphanage um, and there she learns how to play chess and it becomes um, apparent at a really really young age that she's exceptionally talented at chess Um, meanwhile I think this was like common practice in the 50s that in orphanages they would hand out like tranquilizers to children to keep them sort of settled and amenable and stuff like that um that's a a practice I was aware of so I was like what are they giving those kids um so she becomes addicted to tranquilizers at the age of nine and then the theme of addiction is carried throughout the series the one thing I would say is it has seven episodes and um I was really watching an interview with the director and um he was like oh I really felt it needed a mini series format to kind of um, get to know the side characters and stuff like that there are really interesting side characters but I massively disagree it easily could have been a film Um, or even like a two-part series they really really stretch it out to get to the seven episodes and particularly when I thought there would there would be 10 because when I saw it was a series I was like I assume there's like maybe eight or 10 episodes and I would imagine that they were trying for eight and ran out of steam because it is stretched at certain points you're like I'm kind of just watching the same thing now it looks great looks beautiful but like I feel like the scene has already happened just in a different setting and nothing new is being said so that was just mildly annoying on that yeah I feel like what you're saying about it is kind of the the Netflix dilemma where 
depending on who you are, because uh, it's directed by Scott Frank, who is a really good writer, wrote Out of Sight. Um, he wrote Logan, or part wrote Logan, um, and had done Godless on Netflix. And Godless was another show where I was like, this could have been, you know, a two hour to two and a half hour movie, but we've kind of stretched it as far as we can go. And I think, you know, maybe you, you know, I'm, I'm guessing here, maybe someone like Scott Frank can go to Netflix and be like, I have an idea for a movie and they're like, well, we'll give you the money, but it's a TV show while he just doesn't have the cachet that someone else could be like, no, it's a movie. Um, and yeah. Netflix will be like, oh, okay. Yeah, it was just, it actually, it was just, it was annoying and it did detract from how much I actually enjoyed it in that there was times where I was like, I'm just waiting for the ex- next episode so they can actually move on the narrative because it's just like, there was a bit too much of her dancing around, absolutely hammered, and then hitting her head off a coffee table kind of business going on. I was like, this could have been edited and tightened up and been a really, really interesting, yeah, like two, two and a half hour film. Um, so I also watched an Irish film. I think Higgs had talked about this before called Dating Amber, written and directed by David Frayne. Had you not? No, maybe I think of a different Irish no. film. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Better yet. Um, yeah, so it's, uh, he, David Frayne had um, written and directed a film called The Cured a few years ago with um, Sam Keeley. I think his name is Sam Keeley. Elliot Page and Tom Von Lawler. It was kind of a zombie film and uh was really really good and then he made Dating Amber so it's set in 1995 in Kildare where there's um a young boy who's father is in the army um, and is pushing him to join the army but he's struggling with the fact that he thinks he might be gay and then there's another girl in this tiny little village um, who is gay and is fairly 100% certain she's gay so they decide to um, they're both being quite heavily bullied about their sexuality so they decide to pretend to start going out with each other in order to keep the bullies at bay um it was a really sweet film it was like i enjoyed it much more than i thought i would and it i don't think it's really meant i don't think i'm the target audience or anything but it was just like some really lovely soundtrack moments in there the two lead actors fiona shea and lola pettigrew are both gorgeous, really interesting to watch, some really great um, supporting performances as well. I think I watched it on either Google Movies or Amazon Prime. So it's like, it's it's there. You can get it. I advise anyone to watch it. It's really, really sweet film. Um, And just promote Irish film, I guess, is my other main MO there. Uh, All right. So... I watched The Sweet Smell of Success. All right. I was so jealous <laughs> of everyone else having watched it. Um, yeah, it's it's everything the two lads have already said that it is. is absolutely brilliant. I also was surprised, Dave, that you didn't bring up the fact that it's quite short. I was like, why didn't he mention how short it was? It's very short, yeah. What is yeah, it, like, it's like sub 90? 90, 90 minutes. minutes. 95 minutes or something. It gets yeah. to kind of like the end image and then credits rolled. And I was like, oh, Delighted. That's how we used to do it, baby. Just like, <laughs> like it's over. Wow. Hit the credits. Um, um, yeah, some amazing performances in there that I was surprised it didn't get more um, attention or recognition when it came out. Particularly, um, Tony Curtis was absolutely brilliant. And I actually cannot remember the name of the actress, but the but Susan Hunsucker was gorgeous throughout the entire film as well. 
Yeah, I think it, it didn't do that well because it was a movie that was like way before its time and a lot of people pushed back against it because of how just how cynical it is and how dark it is and um everyone was kind of like you know matinee idol Burt Lancaster I don't want to see him like this and Tony Curtis was kind of like you know screwball rom-coms and it was like what these guys are like utter you know utter darkness um so yeah it's kind of one that kind of like after the fact it was just like oh yeah the, that movie was incredible and I think it essentially kind of like I think we mentioned before uh the director never really made a movie in Hollywood again kind of went back to I think he went back to England then ended up being like a dean at a at a university but yeah um phenomenal movie everyone watch it please yeah so and then to kind of round up my viewing corner so um Dahi friend of the podcast had never seen Tenet and then he Lucky was like boy. <laughs> a blessed life <laughs> he was just like would you watch Tenet again and I was like all right like I mean throw it on sure like what's the worst that can happen um, and like to be fair on a second watch if you really do tune out the kind of the overwrittenness of like trying to be so clever and just watch the film it is enjoyable like like it, I think I'd said before there are some interesting sequences in it and stuff that looks cool and stuff like that the music is absolutely incredible did you um, did you work on the subtitles or is the sound mix a bit more bearable the second time around oh no it was still horrible but it, <laughs> the weirdest thing is because like the opening sequence when they're in the opera house when i saw that in the cinema i was like could not understand any of the dialogue there was like bits there where i was like i feel like i'm now missing major plot points because i just didn't really understand what was meant to be happening so on a second watch you're like oh that's what he said oh okay like because you can kind of you're not so worried about trying to take in everything that is happening on the screen because one thing about it is there's just there's just so much happening on the screen at one time there's so many things to be watching and focusing on and trying to unravel. And when you start trying to unravel, you can be kind of like, this is fine. But uh, one of the interesting things about it is when the credits rolled, Dahi was like, have you seen Memento? And I was like, I actually have never seen it. And people have talked about it for years. And yeah, I just like, it just, I just never got around to it. And he was like, he's been doing this thing for years, hasn't he? Like this backwards, like bullets flying back into the gun type thing. And I was like, like he's always had those kind of high concept things and then he was like we're gonna watch Memento so we watched Memento the opening 30 seconds of Memento are a gun being shot backwards like the bullet going back into the gun and I was like this is so this is like he's been practicing <laughs> this for quite some time and the annoying thing is is Memento is a much better film it's it was absolutely brilliant I just thought it was an interesting story interesting concept it's like the the style that the story is told in like um that kind of backwards memory thing was really really interesting performances are great um just still has a lot of fun and playfulness in it as well um and yeah so better film than tenet <laughs> and finally i believe you one more on your list here which i, I, think got one I more. also i also watched uh, so the reason for this film I hadn't heard of this film it's called Yee Yee it was um, it came out in 2000 I think I've seen that right Yee Yee yeah I think, like, um, I think it translates to a one and a two or something it's, uh, um, came out in 2000 uh, written and directed by Edward Chang the reason why I watched this film is because again friend of the podcast I suggested it and I said oh where did you, like, where did you where did you even find that film 
and he was like, it's the highest rated film on Letterboxd. It's in everyone's watch list. It pops up all the time. You see the poster everywhere. I was like, what do you mean? Like, it's the highest rated film. And he was just like, of all the people who have watched it, it is like the highest rated thing. And it was, it was brilliant. It's so long. It's three hours long. It feels like uh, a day, doesn't it? it like, I mean, in fairness, like, like it's a story that kind of takes in like a family and it, every aspect of the family from the youngest to the oldest. And it's about life and death and relationships and love and loss. And it's three hours long. But I mean, in a, in a good way, I found yeah, it to be exceptionally it overwhelming. Like it felt like I was living with these people. Yeah. There was a point where it was almost like I went, I paused it at one point and went to make a cup of tea. And it was kind of like, it was almost kind of like watching, I don't know, kind of like. Yeah, like a, like it didn't feel like a film. It didn't feel like it, like the structure of a film. It is very much just like things happen and it like the plot is kind of moved along in a wave. It doesn't necessarily, there's not the traditional kind of, okay, so this happens, this happens, this happens and this is how we tie all these things up. Like when it gets to the end, I was like, even if like they didn't wrap up all the things, I'd still probably feel okay about it because it is just this sort of like, here's a snippet of these people's lives. Um, Beautifully acted. There's the the young boy in it. He's like eight or nine was incredible. Mm, mm. Um, Yeah, just really, really interesting film. And yeah, I guess I can see why it's the most highly rated film on Letterboxd ever. It was a, it was a, it, it was a four and a half out of five for me. Uh, who knows? On a rewatch someday, maybe it could be a five. I, I, in my own trying to short corner. the rating, are you? What? <laughs> trying to short the rating? I mean, yeah, just dropping it down there on that thing. Everyone else is like five stars, classic. Uh, I will say for my own kind of uh, viewing corner before we get into Dirty Dancing uh, I'm watching like a, a crazy amount of films as always because my days consist of going for walks and watching films I'm averaging two a day at the moment but I'll only give you a few um, on the five star front I, I revisited The Player Robert Altman's The Player starring Tim Robbins a great scathing satire about Hollywood it was the first time in my life when I encountered the, the idea of a five star film it was when I was reading my brother's Empire magazine back when I was about seven or eight years of age and I'm flicking through the magazine and I see this two-page spread, big poster, big photograph of Tim Robbins and five red stars. And I'm seven or I'm eight, you know, and I'm like, can't wait to see that. <laughs> this film that's clearly for adults only. <laughs> and I, I just very, very vividly remember that memory. I remember the room I was standing in. And of course, like I watched lots of films that were much older than, you know, I was, uh, or at least for older audiences at the time. And I've always loved The Player. I think it holds up very, very well. I think it's very smart, very funny, very cruel, very interesting kind of assault in Hollywood by Robert Altman, done very, very well. If you've never seen it, check it out. Uh, It's very satisfying. It has one of the best endings to a film I've ever seen and just kind of moves along at a a clip from start to finish. And probably Tim Robbins' best performance for me. Um, He's... A horrible human being in this movie and does it very very well uh also on the five star front it's weird because i feel like i've said before that i've seen this film but i've it, it's more that like i i there was so much talk about it and i saw lots of scenes from it and i read so much about it but i actually never watched moonlight from start to finish would you believe shame on me and so i was like i think also the idea of sitting down to it just felt so overwhelming and i was like no i'm fucking doing it and i even turned it on and i almost turned it off because i was like oh it's like half ten at night do I really want to sit down to this for two hours? I know it's going to like have an effect and I'm so glad I did because it's a five-star masterpiece. I thought it was absolutely amazing. Um, I th- I, it's just a brilliant, brilliant film. I'm sure everyone knows all about it by now and I will say that like 
just the casting, the acting, the way it's shot, the way it looks, every single person in the film is doing exceptional work. But the final kind of 20 minutes or so, I almost couldn't breathe. I was just like, the the level of tension with people just talking to each other is off the charts. And from like this, the shot of Trevante Rhodes, who is incredible in this film, him walking into the diner, I was like, I felt like I was with him i felt like i was just there it was barry jenkins i mean uh, between this and if beale street could talk his ability to craft worlds and places and people is unbelievable which makes me all the more upset that he's doing a fucking lion king film next for for disney i mean like glad he's getting paid but like what are we doing (laughs) well we do we do he is doing uh the underground railroad first uh colson whitehead's book which is absolutely remarkable and if you've seen the trailer, um, again, like the the Nicholas Bertel is back with the score, doing everything to you. Barry Jenkins kind of seems to be like, in one way, the second coming of Jonathan Demi when it terms in terms of like close ups of people's faces that are just like you know you're just like looking directly into people's souls and falling in love. I think in particularly in in Moonlight, he does it where like there's the scene of. Uh, Andre Holland like smoking the cigarette outside the diner and it's just like the lighting it's just like good lord it's just like yeah gives you every bit of emotion and every bit of feels um hopefully he'll do something good with the Lion King not super excited by that but (laughs) as I said it's it's a while away yet there's still time to for him to drop out (laughs) sorry so as in a live action yes the I sequel do. to the most recent one, I guess. And oh, like, sorry, it's the sequel. I feel actually, I feel like I did hear about that because I was like, did they not do that? I know <laughs> it's just, made? but it's just, it's just so depressing. You're like, really? You're like, just let him do what he's doing. He's making absolute magic. Like, I don't need him pulled into this world. Um, also, on the near five star front, I watched Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express, which I'd never seen before, which is a film from 1994 about two melancholic Hong Kong policemen who fall in love with different women in a strange part of town. And it's kind of a two-hander, uh, done very, very well, very stylish, and it also features a Cantonese cover of Dreams by the Cranberries, which I did not expect to pop on the soundtrack, and I thought it was just great. Uh, it's like an hour of 40, pulled me into its world brilliantly, I thought it was really, really sweet and funny and sad in all the best possible ways. It's an excellent film. Uh, I watched The Guilty, which is being made for Netflix now as a remake, starring Jake Gyllenhaal this year, I think, directed by Antoine Fuqua and written by true detective man Nick Pizzolatto. Uh, This is a Danish film from three years ago, set all in one location, about a police officer who's been demoted to the emergency services call line. Uh, There's something ominous hanging over his head at the start of the film. You can feel that much about it. And he gets a phone call from a woman who claims to be kidnapped. He basically tries to save the day, and there's lots more going on, essentially, in the background. Uh, very gripping, very compelling. 85 minutes, done well. I look forward to seeing the Jake Gyllenhaal version, but they've also cast it out with, like, Paul Dano and Ethan Hawke and Riley Keough, and I'm like, how much are you going to add to this? I think you're probably going to overcook it. Higgs, you've seen this one, I think? Yeah, I really enjoyed it, and um, I think I knew Gyllenhaal was attached, but, yeah, w- when when the words Antoine Fuqua and Nick Pizzolatto came out of your mouth i was like oh god no um <laughs> yeah like i mean it, it, an easy comparison to be something like lock where it's just like you're pretty much just you know on this one person's face pretty tight close up the whole way so like um i can't think of any of the actors in it but like really does carry it and is really good um yeah i'm, I'm worried about the remake now um i don't think it'll be 
Well, if you're looking for that <laughs> one, like I say, it's called, it's called The Guilty. Uh, you can actually watch it on all four. If you sign up to that for free, you can watch it there. And finally, I guess, before we move on, uh, special mention for Malcolm and Marie, which is directed by Sam Levinson, written by Sam Levinson. He's the guy behind Euphoria, which I haven't seen. It stars John David Washington and Zendaya and nobody else. It was shot during the pandemic. It's about a filmmaker who comes home from his successful premiere and has a row with his girlfriend, played by Zendaya, for an hour and 46 minutes, which is outrageous. Uh, um, it's basically Sam Levinson giving out about critics for a lot of it, um, which is strange to me because, like, he's, you know, Barry Levinson's son. Can't imagine he's had to graft too hard to get himself on the Hollywood ladder. He is a wildly successful HBO show that everyone seems to love. And here's him giving out about critics. It's also him talking about, like, the black experience quite a bit. And I'm like, I don't know if that's cool. Um, I know you have John David Washington and Zendaya front and centre in this movie, but it feels very exploitative to me. And ultimately, it's just two actors giving monologues a lot and showing how, how like how dramatic they can be. Uh, I remain totally unconvinced by John David Washington. I think Zendaya is a star and she's mostly good here, but some of the shit she has to do is terrible uh, from dialogue to her physical presentation, which she herself has said that she argued for in terms of like, you know, losing clothing as the movie goes on and such. But ultimately, it's so, 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 so smug and obnoxious it's on netflix if you want to watch it it's well shot i suppose but jesus christ it is one of the most egotistical things i've seen in a very long time and that's it for me right let's get into dirty dancing from 1987 here's the trailer i'm not sure who you are but i don't want you to have anything to do with those people again baby i don't see you running up to daddy telling him i'm your guy well with my father it's complicated i will tell him i don't believe you baby she shows him all he can be you gotta stop it now. I know what I'm doing, Penny. I'm scared of everything. Most of all, I'm scared of walking out of this room and never feeling the rest of my whole life the way I feel when I'm with you. What they learn from each other feels too good to be wrong. Dirty Dancing, starring Patrick Swayze, Jennifer Grey, and Cynthia Rhodes. Get ready for the time of your life. All right, Dirty Dancing, a classic for many. Uh, a film that needs a little introduction, I suppose, but a film that starts with uh, Be My Baby by the Renettes into Big Girls Don't Cry by Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. It also opens with a reference to the assassination of John F. Kennedy, a brief debate about the nature of protest, including imagery of men trapped in mines and monks setting themselves on fire, and Wayne Knight of Seinfeld fame sassing about the place. So you're starting on a very, very high ceiling there, which I greatly appreciate. Um, Like I say, this is a film that needs very little introduction. People seem to love it. Norma, you're a Lighthouse Cinema veteran. I have to imagine that this was played quite a lot and sold out every time. Am I right? Yeah, I think it was definitely like a Valentine's Day special. Um, There's like a handful of films that are just, yeah, the standard each time. I have a feeling like they could have done a karaoke version of it as well. Like sometimes they'll like watch the film and then afterwards it'll be like, you can just get up and belt out your own She's Like the Wind. Nice. Um, (laughs) So yeah, this is... um, (laughs) If the mood takes you. (laughs) Well, I mean, like it almost did with me when I watched it. This is a love story uh, centering around the character of Baby, played by Jennifer Grey. Baby is a, I guess, um, 
like 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 a, like a conscientious young woman. You know, she cares about starving children in Southeast Asia. She wants to join the Peace Corps. Looks like we've got one of those snowflake libs in our dance movie. But don't worry, because we've got bad boy Johnny Castle, played by Patrick Swayze, uh, a man who looks like the Terminator at times when he's wearing all leather and shades. But uh, not quite the villainous guy you might think he is. He's got a heart of gold and he's got incredible moves. Um, like I say, I feel like this film is iconic in, in, in the true sense of that word. Dave Higgins, you're the one who picked this this time. What does Dirty Dancing mean to you? And I guess if you could give us a brief summary of the plot. Yeah, um, what does it mean to me? I guess it's one of those movies that um, you kind of, whether you've seen it or not, you feel like you've seen it. Um, you know, there's so many kind of, whether it be iconic lines, iconic songs, uh, iconic moments in it that you can kind of just absorb um, a lot of it by osmosis without actually sitting down to watch it. And I also kind of why I picked it is that it's it's a movie that has a certain reputation. Like I always think of it when I think of something like Saturday Night Fever and like it, you can boil it down primarily to a couple of scenes and a couple of songs, but there's a lot more going on in it. Um, there's a lot more subplots. Um, it's probably like a lot more interesting in terms of the themes and the, the subtext than it's given credit for, similarly with Saturday Night Fever. So the plot is, um, you mentioned uh, Francis Baby Houseman goes to a resort in the Catskills, which is kind of like upstate New York, kind of known as the Borscht Belt, which kind of in the 50s and 60s were where a lot of Jewish families would have gone uh, for holidays. So they kind of go to a camp, I guess, like comparable to something like Butlins. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know if we don't really have anything like it anymore, certainly. Um, and as you said, she, she wants to study economics. She wants to join the Peace Corps. Uh, she's there with her sister and her two parents. Uh, they seem to go there all the time. They know the management and she kind of gets introduced to um, the entertainment staff. Um, her father the whole time is kind of like trying to usher her away to, you know, meet the, the grandson of, uh, of, the, of the resort. Uh, Kellerman's, I think, is the, is the resort. And she's kind of like indifferent to him. The guy's a bit of a slime ball. Um, but she's, she's drawn in by, by the, the entertainment staff, particularly, who, you know, they're not supposed to mix outside of like very kind of confined situations but you know you can't go to where the entertainment staff do she does she's she's shocked by the dancing the dirty dancing of the title well Um, this is the thing i mean like it's kind of you know (laughs) it's like secret erotic dance cult klaxon uh as she shows up there it's like what's going on behind this barn door with all these sweaty people writhing on top of each other uh sorry you mentioned there the kind of the guy that like who she who fancies her who's like a bit of a kind of a, a bit of a dweeb i guess um that guy right if this film was being remade tomorrow surely griffin newman of blank check with griffin and david fame is playing that character right just this kind of you know um weak-willed no, kind of guy well, and i like griffin newman but i just feel like he could play that character <laughs> Yeah, yeah. All Neil yeah, does is mansplain for the entire film. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally him explaining things to her. He invented it. And being horrible. So anyway, they she 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 she's she bears witness to the dirty dancing. Uh, she's introduced to Johnny Castle, is immediately taken by him. Him not so much by her because he's like, Well, this woman has just come from privilege and wealth. She's never done a, a day of work in her life, she doesn't know how my life is. Uh, 
Johnny's dance partner, Penny, um, they're due to take part in a dance competition, but she can't because she is pregnant and needs to get an abortion. So Baby offers to be the stand-in for the competition. Uh, cue lots of dancing montages to both, you know, 50s pop tunes and 80s uh, power ballads. And they develop a relationship from there. Your cuz, she doing this. She came with me. She's with me. I carried a watermelon. A watermelon. Yeah, I've um, you, you mentioned there kind of like that subplot. I've written down it's it, it escalates into pregnancy terror quite quickly. Uh, it's your classic family-friendly hijink scenario where one young woman must learn a complex dance routine in a matter of days in order for the original dancer to have a clandestine abortion. Uh, this film pulls no punches. It's actually been praised, to be fair, by like the abortion rights advocates have called it the gold standard for cinematic portrayals of abortion. Uh, offering compassionate depictions and such, which I mean, I, like I, I feel like this could be very tonally askew, but it somehow manages to kind of stay roughly centered. Um, in terms of my own experience with the film, I feel like I saw it as a, when, when I was a kid, and obviously it was way too young for lots of reasons. Uh, Norma, what was your first viewing of this film, and where does it kind of land for you in terms of the, I guess, the beloved appeal it has for an awful lot of people, even to this day? Yeah, I was just um, I was just saying to Higgs there, uh, my sister, one of my older sisters, it's like one of her favorite films of all time. Like her her first dance at her wedding was Be My Baby. And I was also just explaining to Higgs that uh, her now husband on his stag do was so drunk that he felt during karaoke it was appropriate to get up and sing all of She's Like the Wind. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So I feel like growing up, it, like Dirty Dancing was played loads, like like the soundtrack. My sister had it on CD. She was obsessed with it. Um, it was probably one of like the first soundtracks that was like a lot of pop music that I just thought was so incredible. I was just like, oh, this is so cool that this is like the music that you can put into film um, because it came out in 1987. Like, I feel like I saw it at a really young age and then repeatedly saw bits of it at least over a number of years. Um, I don't think it was until I was probably in college that I actually sat down and watched the full film one night with a few friends and was like, wow, that... like the abortion subplot is is very heavy and there's a lot of like actually big questions and like statements being made throughout the film particularly with like classism and sort of how having money entitles you to certain things in life and how it doesn't entitle other people and how those people should be treated and I guess it's easy to write it off as just like uh, a fluffy little rom-com with Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey but actually it is much more than that and it is trying to say a lot of things whether people are listening or not to those things but um, I did feel at, at an older age that stuff was more poignant and more interesting and yeah I do think it does a good job of just trying to highlight those issues. Yeah and it's kind of like it's surprising how it's not like it's I guess it is simultaneously like laid on a little bit thick but not like it's not like foreboding dramatic music and any character who tends to kind of demonize the character of Penny is themselves shown to be a horrible person like I mean I I feel like 
if the film is making any kind of moral judgments, it's you know these are the good guys. Like like it's like it's referred to a lot by baby's father that like you know oh that girl got into trouble which i guess is kind of the style of talking at the time and uh even the father at the end of it of course you know you have the kind of crusty old dean moment but you know don't worry you know he'll come good in the end so i guess it's as feel good as it can be to include a plot of uh, like potentially very harrowing subject matter for a lot of viewers like i mean like this is a film like 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 i say i mean i imagine that like you go to see it with your mates, you know, ironically now, or, or at least, like, you know, you go and have a few drinks and watch Dirty Dancing. It's fun. The soundtrack as well, I mean, like, the songs in this are, like, you're opening this film with Be My Baby, and, like, what a cheat code that is. Like, there's an argument to be made here that this is the greatest song ever written. Like, it's an outstanding, outstanding song, and it doesn't really let up from there. Uh, Higgs, I know you have this one on vinyl. I assume you cherish it <laughs> on the regular. It's actually it's actually uh, my girlfriend's vinyl, although I may have got it for her. <laughs> but I, I, I think I probably get more use out of it, let's just say that. So, I mean, in terms of our leads, right, um, I feel like Swayze is like the kind of go-to because he is this kind of angelic figure and the fact that, you know, he tragically passed away in 2009 um, perhaps adds to that kind of stuff. So I guess we'll can, we, can, we can start with him for a second. Norma, have you seen Point Break? I have to, I have to ask you. I have seen Point Break. You have? Okay, I'm glad because I feel like, uh, I, yeah, it's just like, I don't know. I mean, like Swayze was kind of a god, right? I mean... Jesus, <laughs> like what? What? What can't the man do? I mean, it, like in this movie, he's he's kind of perfect, right? I mean, like like it's, I think I think it's perfect casting for both of them, and I think uh, Jennifer Grey got a bit of a raw deal. I think maybe in terms of Hollywood. I mean, I don't know, you know, like in terms of we've met, I think we've mentioned it before on the show that like Matthew Broderick was in a horrific accident in Northern Ireland uh, in which he killed two people. Jennifer Grey was in the same car, and uh, like as a result of this apparently she took like a hiatus from acting and this was like the same year that this film came out she was supposed to be this big massive superstar and it just didn't quite happen for her which is kind of a sad story in and of itself she's maintained a career in television and she's popped up here and there but it's just this weird apex moment for her where like between ferris bueller's day off and this it looked like we were seeing the birth of a brand new star and then she kind of faded away i guess swayze kind of rose a bit and then I don't know, like, I, I find that, like, this film, for so many reasons, is a really interesting time capsule. Like, it's set in the 60s, comes out in the 80s, and it has these two potential megastars that, for different reasons, the paths kind of diverged. But I guess watching this film, like, it's kind of a perfect moment. It's kind of a perfect kind of, like, thing to just have. Like, 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 like I say, I use the phrase time capsule, but... I don't know. I mean, like, there's something kind of strangely timeless about this. I think even, like, the setting, like, where it's kind of set, like, it's so hermetically sealed. It feels unreal. Like, it's, like, like there's a moment at the end where the guy who runs this thing talks about how, uh, oh, like, people don't come here anymore and, like, all oh, the kids want to go to Europe now. And it's just like, oh, no, the sad demise of the American foxtrot getaway. But, like, the whole thing, like, like it's such a strange thing, a note for the film to introduce at the end because he's so melancholic about it and i'm like what commentary is this being shoved in here right now yeah like you you mentioned the the opening of the movie and i think it's it's set in 63 so it's just before jfk is killed but in terms of like it's it's outlook it doesn't seem like a movie from the 60s or certainly when you think of the 60s it's like that's not the 60s it would have thought of like it's very very much a 50s movie and it's kind of like basically like this is the last summer of innocence for that kind of way of american life um so yeah like i I think the idea of like of a bubble throughout the whole thing as well like i mean um you know it was made 
in the 80s during the Reagan era and Reagan was kind of like, oh, go back to the, the way of 50s American life. And it's kind of like, yeah, it it certainly pops it in a way. Um, but yeah, just on Swayze, I, I, I agree. There's like, he's... He's got something for like absolutely everyone, and it was kind of some something kind of like it's kind of hard not to watch this movie and be like, um, I wonder, you know, if you were going to remake this, which they have for TV, but like if you were to to really take it seriously, like who could be Johnny Castle? And it's like I don't know if we have someone quite like Patrick Swayze anymore. Just you know, he could be so convincing in romance movies. He is quite funny. He has an amazing physical presence. He's incredible in action. Uh, he can sing, he can dance, like he does it all. Um, and his career is kind of like it's it is kind of disappointing because like, you know, post you mentioned Point Break, like after Point Break, it kind of just it didn't really happen. He had a lot of flops Um he had his troubles with alcohol. I think he like broke both legs at one stage and was kind of like had a lot of like rehabbing to like get back, just actually like physically moving around and um yeah, it's it's kind of tragic and something I didn't know. Like, I kind of always assumed that, like, you know, maybe we'll touch on this. Uh, it's it's not really said exactly what age Johnny Castle is in this movie. Baby is supposed to be 17. Jennifer Grey was 27 when they, they filmed this. Hatcher Swayze was 35, so he was quite well into his career. Um, I think, like, when I read, because, yeah, they don't mention his age, but in, like, the Wikipedia synopsis, the suggestion is he's, like... 24 I think or something yeah I always got the impression he was uh that he was early 20s like he wasn't the first to be cast in this um apparently Val Kilmer turned it down and Billy Zane was brought in Billy Zane was 20 at the time so I guess kind of you know makes it more age appropriate but uh he didn't have any chemistry with Jennifer Grey so they kind of they bounced him out and then brought in Swayze but um yeah it just kind of watching this I was like he was so so good he had like maybe like a five-year run from like this you know and then you get like Roadhouse which is immensely enjoyable Ghost Point Break and then kind of like is that that was kind of the moment um and you know tragically I haven't seen The Beast which was his TV show that he kind of he was making just um before he died by all accounts is like meant to be one of the best things he did and was kind of very much in that you know, late 2000s, around the time of Breaking Bad, where it's like, Difficult Men, a TV show, but was <laughs> supposedly quite good. He was great yeah. in Donnie Darko as well, of course. Um, yeah. Norma. He supposedly, his CV, when they, because they had cast Jennifer Grey and they were looking for a Johnny. Um, and supposedly on his CV, they saw that he had dance training, but it said like ankle injury or there was some injury involved where it was kind of like, I don't do this thing anymore. Um, and they sent him the script anyway. And then he read the script and he was like, oh, yeah, you know what? Let's do it. I really, really want to do this thing. So it is kind of interesting that we're like, we can't picture a different casting. And yet it's so very could have easily dropped into someone else's lap if they just gone oh it says here that like he has an injury and he doesn't dance and I think throughout the filming of it he did go to hospital like two or three times um just from doing so many dirty dances (laughs) (laughs) Uh, how did you find the performances and the chemistry between our lead pair yeah like I thought they had like really explosive 
chemistry which again is weird because apparently they'd worked together on a film called Red Dawn and not gotten along or Jennifer Grey didn't really like Patrick Swayze and then they did screen test and it was meant to be like incredible and then on set apparently they had like moments where they just it seemed like they kind of brushed each other up the wrong way which I always find fascinating then because on screen it just seems to work so well together and it like I guess that's the idea of um, I don't know what like ages that they're playing or anything kind of goes out the window because the romance and that sort of like falling madly in love with someone just works really well yeah I never really thought about the age thing like it just didn't really come up at all for me yeah it doesn't really register that much you know I bought it it was movie magic fight harder huh I don't see you fighting so hard baby I don't see you running up to daddy telling him I'm your guy well, with my father, it's complicated. I will tell him I... I don't believe you, baby. I don't think that you ever had any intention of telling him. Ever. Yeah, I think their chemistry is absolutely incredible in this. And I think that the fact that maybe they didn't like each other is quite beneficial because, you know, when you're... When they kind of first meet each other, they are kind of prickly with each other and they are confrontational and... I think if that was there on the set and that's come true, like it certainly has helped. And to get to the point where they, you know, their defenses start to drop a bit and they start to get mutual respect for each other, perhaps, you know, through the both the filming uh, for them and for the characters is amazing. Um, yeah, they're they're wonderful together. Is the plot, um, does it matter? Like, I mean, like, like, like is it a case of it's straightforward, that works, it's basic, did you want anything more from it? Is there even enough dancing? You know, like, like, like I kind of thought there'd be maybe slightly more, maybe possibly, but like, um, or, or maybe I'm just being greedy, I don't know. I, uh, I had read, uh, Robert Ebert? Roger Ebert. Roger yeah. Ebert, sorry. I Not a fan of this movie. Wrong. Not yeah. a fan. No, he basically was like <laughs> like basically stupid storyline of boring romance film. Idiot blah, plot, blah. I think. Yeah, he said. idiot plot. Yeah. Like specifically he thought the plot was annoying. What I thought I'd like forgotten when I sat down to watch it the other day, I was like, Oh my god, this the pacing of this film, like, it moves along so quickly. It did not feel like it felt like I'd been watching something for an hour. Like I, I think the plot that is there works really well within the film and supporting the the characters around it because you do get a lot of like supporting characters who are just doing like their little bits but I still feel like I got a fairly good grasp of who they are and what they're about um, and yeah it never felt like the film was dragging which I guess is also helped by the choreography and those dance sequences I thought there was a sufficient amount of dancing <laughs> Yeah, what like were you this, expecting? This, this movie is like 50% dancing. Were you just like... <laughs> you wanted the whole... 50% dancing? Oh, no, there's I, a lot of like, rehearsing dancing as well. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, like once, there's definitely dancing. Once you get past was it the first dance, um, so... Wasn't all that dirty first, either, guys, is all I'm going to say. You know? Not the first Penny time you're introduced to... Yeah, exactly. The first time you were introduced to Penny and Johnny together, like they have that big like tango, which is like very grand and spectacular. Like... And then you basically go from that into the staff quarters where, you know, you, you get your fill of your dirty dancing, David. Uh, and <laughs> my, is it dirty? I kind of forgot. That was one of the things. Again, like everyone's like probably being like, oh, yeah, I watched this as a kid. And like, 
Jesus Christ, like sweaty, throbbing, gyrating asses, dry hump central. Um, <laughs> it's lots like of sweat. Genuinely there is, filthy. There's lots of like, like sweat just rolling down people's faces, glistening. I, I would say like, I don't know whether that is natural sweat or if that was a makeup artist who had to religiously go around with spray, just spraying <laughs> down people so they were. Because my God, Patrick Swayze is in a constant state of lovely sweatiness for the entire world. I, w- I would like to think that just off camera there are like industrial heaters just like really <laughs> cranking it up on set. <laughs> People were passing out in scenes. <laughs> I wonder was this you know, like was this controversial when this film came out? I mean like was there any kind of band this sick filth or was it seen as wholesome? I mean I'm curious as to like what the kind of the general middle America reaction was or even even over here in, in little old Ireland. I I know what I was I was looking up about it because I was even just like when you're younger you don't really register I guess the kind of the timelines because it came out in 87 it's set in 63 and then like I guess on the like abortion subplot Roe v. Wade is 73 I think so when it, I know that like when it went into when they were pitching it to different um, studios there was a lot of like Oh, why is that thing put in? I feel like the dirty dancing was less controversial than the subplot, which seemed, which is what I think the writer Eleanor Bergstein re- really wanted to keep in and really wanted to push for. And there was a lot of like, why do we need this other thing in there? And it's interesting because I feel like she was just like, it's kind of the crux of the thing. It's like showing up these people to. Be- to what they really are and like highlighting that thing so yeah I don't know if there was a lot of controversial backlash from like the sexiness <laughs> <laughs> yeah like as you mentioned Norma I think like one of the things about this is that um, no studio wanted to touch it and you know I don't necessarily know if that was just that they were like well this kind of seems like a, a dumb movie like has uh as Roger Eber would say, or if it was kind of what was within the movie, because it eventually, like, it's it's one of the most successful independent movies ever made. It was made by a studio that was bankrupt within a couple of years. Uh, I had a look at their kind of like their catalogue and only seemed to have made one other movie I could recognise, which is uh, Catherine Bigelow's Blue Steel, which is a, a good film. So you could actually say, I guess it wasn't for this studio of Estron, that Point, uh, Point Break would have never existed <laughs> But um, yeah, in terms of um, the time, I don't think it was like massively controversial because I think like you kind of can watch this on a superficial level and a lot of people do watch this on a superficial level to the point that you kind of just like you forget like it's like we said, it's like we remember the dancing, but then sometimes you're like, yeah, there's a really, you know, there's an abortion plot line. It's like a very botched abortion plot line. Like it's very, very harrowing. Uh, it's I think it's handled really, really well. But yeah, studios were like iffy on it. And afterwards there was like, you know, to get tie-ins, to get some branding going, like apparently Clearasol were kind of like, oh yeah, you know, this coming of age drama about a teenager, this is like um, something that we can use to sell our product. And then they kind of saw it and saw the abortion plotline. They were like, we will be passing on this. So yeah, I don't, I don't think it has that, uh, that kind of reputation. It's uh, apparently the first film to sell a million copies on beautiful, beautiful VHS, which is uh, quite the feather in its cap, if true. Um, let's take a listen to Patrick Swayze saying the film's most iconic line, shall we? Everyone. 
Nobody puts baby in a corner. Sorry about the disruption, folks. But I always do the last dance of the season. But this year, somebody told me not to. So I'm going to do my kind of dancing with a great partner, who's not only a terrific dancer, but somebody who's taught me that there are people willing to stand up for other people, no matter what it costs them. Somebody who's taught me about the kind of person I want to be. Miss Francis Hassel. Sit down, Jake. BRB, just writing Johnny Castle on my Converse runners over here. But sorry, Higgs, go ahead. Yeah, just, just watching that clip there again, like, um, it's such a, like, when you, when you see Swayze and the way he delivers it, he's, like, he's so nervous. Um, kind of something I hadn't really kind of thought of before. Like, there's a lot of this movie where he's in front of all this kind of this wealth and this aristocracy and he's, you know, he's putting on a big performance, but he's dancing. But when it comes to actually having to like talk to these people, like he's taking a deep breath before he says everything. He sounds like a nervous little boy up there. It's like it's such a good, uh, a good performance from him. Yeah, no, he manages to embody it pretty well. Is is Johnny Castle a good guy, though? Or is he a bit too clean? I don't know. Norma, where do you stand on him? I think he's a good guy. Um, he like, like even from that clip alone, like you were saying, Higgs, he does have such a a nervousness, which is so interesting because again, it's just highlighting how he's allowed into the lives of these wealthy people, but he's never going to be able to earn their respect or their trust or anything like that because there's so many little times throughout the film where he's just pulled right back like where he's accused of um stealing a wallet and like they don't even really bother looking into it and they're just like we should just fire that guy and i think that's i think that's actually neil is just trying to get rid of him because he knows baby fancies johnny i think yeah 100 um, he gets ratted out as well by the because there's, there's like another weird kind of subplot where it's kind of implied that like he's kind of a gigolo as well um for yeah like, like older what do what do they call them bungalow bunnies which yeah. is like a because, like, fascinating there's, there's, phrase yeah i guess like w- within this the kind of the class system um it's very much like well the rich have money and kind of can do what they want like when we first meet kellerman at the start and he's given his big speech to the waiting staff and there's like a very much a difference between the waiting staff and the entertainment staff the waiting staff seem to be kind of all Ivy League, um, you know, exemplified College by Robbie. College boy, like, at one stage, I believe, yeah, Johnny says. Yeah, going to Yale. And Kellerman is, like, he's saying, like, show all the daughters a good time, even the dogs. And there's, like, the implication then as well that, you know, Johnny is being paid by Vivian's husband, who kind of shows up on the weekend and is basically like, you know, show my wife a good time. Here's a couple of bucks. And, um, you know, it's it's because he kind of rejects that and the fact that he's just been kind of like farmed out um, that he ends up being accused of stealing. Yeah. Which like I, I resolves think... in a ridiculous, sorry, just in a, in a ridiculous way of like, they were like, oh no, it was actually this old couple and we figured it was <laughs> them because we, their, fing, their fingerprints were on uh, 
their fingerprints were on the like, glasses of water. It's like, oh, wow, CSI, cat skills. <laughs> <laughs> there are moments in this film where they do have to kind of like wrap up certain things as quickly and cleanly as they can. Um, and they do come across a little bit clunky and a, like a little bit silly because there's um, part of the sort of the abortion subplot is that one of the waiting staff is a guy called Robbie and he's going to Yale and he's got this job to sort of you know make some money during the summertime Um, and baby sister Lisa fancies him and has taken a shine to him and then it transpires that he's the one who got Penny pregnant and doesn't want anything to do with her isn't going to pay for the abortion doesn't give two shits and it's just like who's to say it's even mine sort of thing and he's just an exceptionally gross character and he gets his comeuppance at the end even though it does feel a little bit like oh okay we gotta we gotta like you know get this little thing in here so uh he's chatting to baby's dad who's like after giving him money and like you know treating him like a son because he's um interested in lisa and stuff like that and he wants to help him through yale and then he's like oh hey thanks for helping out with that old penny problem and you're like i guess we've all been there right he says to him like yeah and then obviously the dad is like wait what i thought it was like it was johnny who had gotten uh penny pregnant and then he's just like get out of my sight type thing and it's kind of like I don't think Robbie would have been silly enough to bring up something like that in the reality. The situation is he would have probably just gotten away with it. So it's in a, yeah, it's a, there's some kind of forced little moments to try and get some social justice. Yeah. And I, I guess like, I don't really know if it's a comeuppance for, for Robbie because the kind of person that he is, like he's absolutely learned nothing in this movie. But uh, let's hear a little clip of him and his interesting reading habits. Just where do you get off telling me what's right? But you can't just leave her. Yeah, I didn't I mean... blow a summer hauling toasted bagels just to bail out some little chick to probably ball every guy in the place. A little precision, please, baby. Some people count. Some people don't. Read it. I think it's a book you'll enjoy, but make sure you return it. I have notes in the margin. You make me sick. Stay away from me. Stay away from my sister. Or I'll have you fired. Yeah, so uh, the book in question is The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Um <laughs> A favourite of a uh, former Republican Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. Um, <laughs> actually, the YouTube clip I played is uh, Paul Ryan as a teenager, rare footage. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if people have, well, maybe not have read The Fountainhead, but it is basically a, you know, American conservative libertarian fantasy, essentially, uh, the idea of like the individual far more important than the collective. Um, to give you another idea of the kind of movie it was, Zack Snyder loves it and was apparently going to make an adaptation of it until he realized that people will think that it's hardcore right wing propaganda, uh, which he was probably right. Um, so, yeah, like Robbie is just an utter garbage human just in this. Shit <laughs> But you also get that bit though after like after his non comeuppance where like uh, baby's father who by the way like all of his dialogue sounds incredibly ADORed like like it was recorded like six times and like mixed differently or something but like he comes over and you know 
says to Johnny, he's like, listen, you know, when I'm wrong, I say I'm wrong. But then he doesn't say, I apologize. Like, he doesn't actually just, like, like finish the thought. It's like, thanks, yeah, cheers. And, he's a good you know, old-fashioned he- man. <laughs> <laughs> he, can, he can only go 1% of the way. Um, I do yeah, find, no, it- like, the... Um- the dad character is tricky because it, it it is a difficult thing to kind of set up like she looks up to him and he's meant to be the person who guides her and tells her about the world and then when she says she just needs money and she doesn't tell him what for that it's for an abortion and he's like you lied to me and she's like well you lied to me you said everyone in the world is meant to be treated the same but they're not and it's like yeah like it's weird that he would say that to you considering he actively also treats people who he doesn't think deserve his time or respect the same way as all the other rich wealthy people so i'm like like is he is he a good guy i don't know he's an old-fashioned man you know yeah because he also in fairness to him gets up in middle of the night and goes and performs a procedure on penny after a botched abortion and Basically saves her life. Yeah, and then Penny so, like, later praises his bedside manner. Says he's a very nice man. So I guess you know, I guess Hippocratic oath and all that. Higgs, what do you think? Yeah, yeah I, I think he's a good guy. But uh, yeah, uh, just on kind of what what he says to uh, to baby about like you know all people are equal. I think it kind of like that feeds into like how kind of naive she is. Um, like I feel like she's she's contrasting uh, against her sister who kind of seems like completely kind of clueless and, you know, to borrow, a, you know, a modern term, she's not very woke and isn't very aware of everyone else. While Baby would probably say that she is, but she's completely uh, blind to all the privileges of herself. Like she has this like recurring line that she just always says throughout the movie where it's just like something happens and she's like, it doesn't have to be this way. Yet she doesn't understand that, like, you know, her go to is just like, well, I go and I talk to my dad who is wealthy and, you know, in a position of power either to get money from him. That's her kind of like, it doesn't have to be this way. She doesn't really understand um, all the people that she's talking to, even though she says that she wants to help them. Uh, I want to take a blast of Patrick Swayze singing for a second. And then I want to just discuss the last few minutes of this movie. So here's Patrick Swayze with the best song of all time. She's taking my heart, but she doesn't know what she's done. Feel the breath in my face, her body close to me. Can't look in her eyes. She's out of my league. <laughs> Just a fool to believe I am anything. Like the wind. Oh, very bit of tasteful sax there. I feel like we could play that song Incredible. all day long. I've got chills. It's unbelievable. <laughs> Apparently, he co-wrote the song years before and tried to get into it in a couple of different films, and then got into this one. And it's the rest was history. Of course, it has been the number one song for the last uh, thirty. What four years or whatever it's been? Um, yeah, uh, is it a good song? Is it just right for this movie? It plays over a montage, of course, of you know them kind of falling in love and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I guess that like chorus in particular, I, I had this moment where I was like, oh yeah, that's what that song is. I've known this song for years. I forgot it was Patrick Swayze. I mean, 
again what what can't he do i will say that like um one of the uh letterbox reviews i saw of this said that like the last 10 minutes of this movie is better than the godfather and i will say that when i was watching it <laughs> i was watching it today and i'm you know i, I I've, I've always had this thing where whether it's going to a gig or whether it's reviewing an album or watching a movie i'm kind of forever writing my review in my head while i'm watching it and that sounds really annoying but it's actually just the way my brain works and i'm pretty good with it and with this one you know, I'm watching the movie and I'm like, like as, as I am with a lot of movies, I'm like, what rating am I going to give this on Letterboxd the second it's over? Because I'm a fucking geek now. But like, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I think it, the more it goes on, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I think it's a three. It's, it, it's, it, feel, it feels like a three. And then the last dance number sequence thing happens and I'm like, you're getting a half star for this. It's just so good. <laughs> it's, it's pretty much a perfect ending, right? It's so good. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they created, you know, a... A flash mob. Yeah, it's such like a triumphant ending. Just like, you know, as I said, like the, the Robbie comeuppance isn't really there. But like from like the minute of like nobody puts baby in the corner, you have like the vulnerability of of Johnny um, kind of speaking in front of the audience. And then just like the start of the dance is like, Jesus, like again, like the, the goddamn chemistry in this movie. He kisses her he on the nose, like, goddamn. Yeah, a little kiss on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite just, things as well about the just the ending sequence is that um, is the mom's name Marjorie, Marjorie Houseman. I believe it is. I think it is. Yes. Sorry. As I quickly, whenever you hear a gap on the podcast, it's me looking up something. <laughs> <laughs> um, Marjorie Houseman, um, where when Johnny and baby are dancing and it cuts her and she's like, I think she gets it from me. <laughs> she's just like, is this it now? The parents approve. It's all okay. It's like, and everyone's dancing. Happy days. You know? Everyone's dancing. Get everyone um, I do, having a dance. I do love that. Like it goes from like, you know, he goes and he puts a, a record on. It's clearly a song from the eighties and in the early sixties, but nobody cares about that. But then like, <laughs> Because before it, when he interrupts, there's like they're doing that weird kind of like Kellerman's all song together that has like real Black Rock, Black Rock College vibes about it. Just like, you know, so proud of itself. Um, but yeah, there's a band there. And then did the band just start like playing on top of um, this this record that Patrick Swayze has brought back from the, or, you know, from the 1980s? There is a moment cause when Kellerman is like, have you got sheet music for this or something? And then they're just like, yeah. ha, ha, ha. and you're like, this is insane. But it's very also back to the great. future. Yeah. Amazing. It's very like it's totally fantasy fun. sequence, but it's great. It's, it brings yeah, the house down. It's one of like, that's one of the weird things about the film is that a lot of the like fifties music works so well. And you're like, oh yeah, this is something they would have listened to. And they would have, that would have been playing on the radio. And then you've got the eighties tunes. And sometimes I think if you, if you're going to go for a, a specific time period and, like research that music should you just stick to the music of the time solely and like work with that but yeah it doesn't seem to bother me in this film that there's just like big 80s power ballads and stuff like that I was just like yeah you know what absolute bangers why not yeah and I'm fairly sure it's like credits fairly soon after I can't recall the final shot of this movie even though I watched it two hours ago but it's it's fairly economical they just walk they walk out don't they and then it's Basically like, that. I think so. And it's yeah. just like, song plays, everyone has a good time, belter of a soundtrack. I must track down the vinyl. Uh, any last kind of uh, wrap-up thoughts on this one, Norma? What's your rating on this out of five, if I, if I um, dare I ask? I'd probably give it a three and a half as well. Get in. <laughs> if, I was in if I was in a real romantic mood, 
Maybe a four. Push it to a four. You never know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is it. an incredible soundtrack, and it is like uh, like it does do a little bit more work than it's a, your average rom com. Like yeah. it is, it is pushing you to think a little bit more than just like two young kids fall madly in love type things. So yeah, it's worth a little bit more than that for sure. Yeah. Jennifer Grey is really good. Swayze's godlike. Higgs, what's your overall? I'll give it a 9 out of 10. This thing is such an absolute joy. <laughs> Change the scale. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, it's just, as I said, like, it can it can be enjoyed on one level where you're just like, you know, incredible chemistry from your leads. Um, I don't think there's really a bad song in it. Um, the dancing is amazing. Like, um, we kind of haven't really talked about it, but, like, it's genuinely really, really impressive. Um, they're both incredible dancers. I think the choreography is great to the point where you're just like, you know, obviously the the lift is kind of the iconic moment that everyone thinks about, but there's so much in this, like, technically that looks uh, remarkable. And, yeah, I just just love it. And then all the kind of everything that goes underneath it and to to make a movie that, you know, is essentially working within a genre where you think you're getting something and has all these references, has a pretty, like, uh, tough uh, but very, very relevant uh, subplot. Even, like, the little kind of insert jokes of, like, um, Robbie loving the Fountainhead is, like, it's, like, those (laughs) little bits, I think, are marvellous. Just one song, when I was watching it, I think it's it's one of the scenes, maybe after uh, Johnny and Baby have sex for the first time, there's always like a radio on in, in Johnny's kind of Make room. Love. And they're Sorry. like, Excuse me. <laughs> what? The base, what happened? Engage in sexual congress, you say. I mean, continue. And um, there's this great song in the still of the night. And I was like, I know this song. Never did I think that there would be an overlap between Dirty Dancing and this. young I, I thought house painters painted houses <laughs> what did I know I was a working guy a business agent for Teamster Local 107 out of South Philly one of a thousand working stiffs until I wasn't no more and then I started painting houses myself yeah so uh amazing it turns out that martin scorsese is a big dirty dancing fan his can his i just say can i just say real quick before we wrap up here i know i brushed in my other li- or my, my, my other listening my other watching earlier on the show but like uh one i watched the the, the departed again recently and <laughs> jesus christ i know everyone talks about it but like the balls on that man to not just use gimme shelter for the third time in his career or probably more but to play it twice in the film and to play i'm shipping up to boston by dropkick murphy's approximately three or four times in the movie just next level marty uh also uh we mentioned stack cast earlier on i watched copland the other day for the first time ever and you mentioned like count the wire actors count the fucking sopranos actors in this and just count the general cast this is a film that has like debbie harry and method man just popping up for five seconds for like out of nowhere but the reason i mentioned this is because we heard de niro there robert de niro in copland combination of like the worst haircut i've ever seen him have in my life and the mustache just outrageously bad him grappling with a sandwich for approximately five minutes at one stage and he has an outstanding De Niro delivery at one stage when he's talking to Stallone and he goes 
he he goes, I I told you to go be a cop. And you blew it! And it's just like, it's the most De Niro I've ever heard of me, which is great. But yes, uh, amazing music. Scorsese, because I feel like he does use In the Still of the Night at some other, in some other film. I feel like possibly. Is it, is it also in, not Scorsese, but is it, is it in A Bronx Tale? I feel like it probably pops up there. Sure. It, it could be. I mean, it's a beautiful song anyway, but... um, But yeah, I'd actually forgotten that they play it. They play it twice in The Irishman. It, oh, it, it, it opens and closes. It opens and closes so it, the film. It, it, has the, it, has, it opens with that like, He's just long like, tracking shot. Why look for another song? Have you <laughs> watched that more than one thing? I feel like you have, right? The Irishman. I have watched it twice and I might be watching it again this week. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible. Okay, well, look, it's listen. actually, it's in, in defense of The Irishman, it's a very easy film to actually. Throw it's a good on film. It's just very long. Yeah, let it happen. It's a real Sunday afternoon movie, and it is Sunday afternoon as we record this. We'll wrap it up. Uh, that was Dirty Dancing, not The Irishman, of course. And next time on No Popcorn, we'll be going to this movie. It doesn't really matter much what a man does with his life. What matters is the legend that grows up around him. Brian Slade was the wildest rock star to come out of London. The biggest thing since sliced Beatles. But that wasn't enough. We set out to change the world. What happened? Who did it? And why? Next week is the anniversary of the whole shooting incident. One journalist is about to look into the mystery. So that's Velvet Goldmine. That's up next for us on No Popcorn. We won't be doing Stardust, the Bowie biopic, where they have none of the rights to the music, but we might watch it in advance as preparation for this. I don't know. That's up to you. But Norma Howard, you picked this movie, Velvet Goldmine, which I've actually never seen before. So why did you pick this one? Um, well, I had heard that they that Stardust was going to be coming out. So I haven't actually seen Stardust. I think it stars Johnny Flynn. Um, he's a pretty good actor. I saw him last in Emma at the start of the year with Anya Taylor-Joy, who I just love bringing up on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, and it like it was like it's gotten incredibly bad reviews, and then I was just like, "What's a like?" Just trying to, I was just thinking about like Bowie biopics in general, and then I was like, "God, Velvet Goldmine was good, wasn't it?" I hadn't watched like I watched it when I was a teenager, so I haven't watched it since. So there's lots about it I do not remember. Jonathan Rhys Meyers, uh, Ewan McGregor, Christian Bale, Christian, Christian Bale. Bale, Tony Collette. Um, Tony Collette and is also uh, not licensed by Opic. I think specifically <laughs> hey. David Bowie because it's um, it's years and years old. David Bowie had been like, absolutely not. No way you're not getting anything. Um, so also it could be a film to watch that is potentially a masterclass and how to rip off the story of someone's life. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, thanks very much to Dave Higgins for suggesting Dirty Dancing for this episode. Thank you both for joining me on this sacred day of love. Uh, Once again, I wish you a happy birthday, which which will have happened by the time the show comes out. Uh, Yeah, that's all there is to say. It's Patreon. Sorry, I only just realised that Dave's name on the Zoom call is Valentine's Dave. Yeah, I'm telling you. (laughs) Like Uh, Valentine's is Dave. It's been there for the past hour and a half or so, just waiting, waiting uh, on some love. There it is. Uh, It's patreon.com slash noancore if you want to give the show some love of course for the price of a pint you can get bonus episodes playlists and our warm and fuzzy feeling of love you know all that kind of stuff whatever uh it's it's no popcorn it's no encore every friday we'll be back very very soon my name is dave hanready that's norma howard and dave higgins and to play us out one of the best songs ever sure, I'm
podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Oh, what's this? Zenny's 3D Virtual Try-On. Pretty cool, right? Wait, are those prices real? Do they have glasses for men? Yep, they also have affordable blue light glasses. Seriously? At those prices? Get them all. I like where this is going. Zenny.com. Prescription glasses starting at $6.95. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.